day. But as he rode on a donkey, no, as he rode on a colt into the town of Jerusalem, there were shouts of Hosanna, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There were young people who were confessing just out of the mouth of babes, God had perfected praise. And I think we've been able to experience that today. Amen? Yeah. Who knew, um, except for Jesus, who knew that just a few days later, after riding into the capital city as a king, he would be celebrating what would be his last supper with the disciples. Just a few days later, on that Thursday, he gathered around that table, and um, I mean, we, we kind of have a, a replica of, of that experience here just now, and you know, this was a time in which Jesus recognized, hey, this, this was a supper that he wanted so badly to experience with his disciples. Why? Not just because it was his last one and he was out of there. No, but because he knew that as a result of what he would do on Calvary, each of his followers would have the privilege of being one with Jesus. That's why we call it communion. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper, we call it communion for that very reason, to be in oneness with God. And so, in just a few moments, we're going to have the chance to be able to celebrate that. We're going to have uh, the distribution of, of unleavened bread, bread without, uh, without this symbol of, of blemish or sin. And that's going to symbolize the body of Jesus. And we're going to have cups of grape juice, juice that has been pressed, fruit that has been crushed, a symbol of Jesus' spilt blood for us. Okay, so in just a few moments, we'll, we'll get to experience that. And maybe you've seen it in your bulletin. We'll also be able to do what's called foot washing. How many of you have heard of foot washing before? Yeah? Okay, I realize that maybe some of us here, we've, we've never really heard of that or experienced that. And maybe you're wondering, does that mean that we're all going to go to the waterfall out there and kind of wash our feet? No, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're actually just going to follow the example of Jesus. In John chapter 13, before he distributed the bread and the juice to his disciples, what did he do? He went around and took the form of a servant and actually washed each of the disciples' feet, much to their dismay, because they realized that that was the role of a servant. And for their master to take on the role of a servant, that means that really that was a call for them to take the role of a servant as well. And so what we get to do before we experience communion with Jesus, we get to experience communion, so to speak, with one another and offer ourselves in service to each other. And so maybe right now you're even thinking, okay, who am, I gonna, who am I gonna wash feet with? And maybe it's a, a dear sister, maybe it's a dear brother in Christ, maybe it's your own family. And so we'll have different rooms for that. You'll, you'll be able to just kind of process that. And the different rooms um, over here were, are, is a men, er, the men's room. So um, m- brother and brother, you know, we'll partner up here in this room. And then if, if you'd like to experience this with a, a fellow sister, sister and sister, uh, go to Bellamin Hall. And then the third option, if you'd like to experience this as a family, as married couples, you can go to the kindergarten Sabbath school classroom. So you just follow this sidewalk just directly that way. Is that, is that clear enough? I'll, I'll remind you later on. Maybe you'll take notes later on. <laughs> okay, so before we get into that experience, we want to break the bread of life right here. All right? So we're going to dig into the Word of God together. We're actually going to go to Matthew chapter 25. So take your Bible, if you will, and go to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to pick up from where we left off last Sabbath. 
Last Sabbath, we, we looked at that story of the parable of the ten virgins who were awaiting the arrival of the groom. This morning, we're taking a look at the parable of the talents. Matthew chapter 25, first book of the Gospels. Chapter 25, when you're there, say amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 25. Before we even begin to read, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we recognize today that you are the giver of all good things. And that when you sent Jesus to this earth, first as a humble babe, and then as the crucified king, Lord, you have made a way possible for us to be one with you. And as we're seeking you out, as we're seeking instruction in your word, we're praying, God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is wide open to Jesus. Please speak to us. Prepare us for this foot washing and communion service. Prepare us and inform us, and more than that, transform us. We pray this in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 25. You'll remember that Matthew chapter 25 comes after Matthew chapter 24, right? In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is instructing the disciples a private conversation about the things to expect in order to know when the coming of Jesus is near, when that second coming, when the return of Jesus would be near. And at the end of Matthew chapter 24, he basically lets them know, hey guys, you want to know exactly when I'm coming, but the truth is no one knows the day or the hour, right? So what does Jesus instruct them to do in Matthew chapter 24, if you just flip a chapter earlier, Matthew chapter 24 verse 42, the Bible says, what are the first two words? Watch therefore, okay? Because you don't know the day or the hour, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And as Jesus goes on to explain, he is now describing what it means to watch. What it means to constantly be ready for the second coming. In fact, he, he goes into those two parables at the end of Matthew chapter 24 about a faithful and wise servant. you remember this? Versus an evil servant. In other words, what Jesus wants is that we would watch and not just get ready, but that we would be ready in a way that's not fake, in a way that's true to our profession. And so in Matthew 25, the very first parable of Matthew chapter 25, it's those ten virgins. And so what we understand there is that watching for the second coming of Jesus, watching means obtaining oil for who? For yourself, right? Those, those five foolish virgins, they said, hey, give us some of your oil. But what do the wise virgins say? Get some of your own right? Get some of your own. Was that because they could care less about their, you know, their, their teammates there? No, but because they realize that there are certain things that you can only do for yourself. Knowing God for yourself. Doing God's will for yourself, right? That's what the parable of the ten virgins explains. This is what watching means. Obtain oil for yourself. Know God for yourself. Do God's will for yourself. If you missed that sermon, you can look on our website, Go to the podcast page and you'll find it right there. But just in case anybody begins to think that watching for the second coming is all about me, myself, and I, <laughs> Jesus goes on to the next parable and explains, you know what, this personal relationship of watching, it's not just about yourself, 
but it's for the benefit of others. So there's the next parable. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. The Bible says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered what to them? His goods to them. Okay, this isn't talking about, um, you know, uh, obtaining the services of FedEx or UPS and saying, okay guys, here you go. No, this is actually entrusting. That word deliver, it means to hand over. To literally entrust. He delivered his goods to them, and we know this story. Verse 15, and to one he gave how many talents? Five talents. To another, two. And to another, how many? One. To each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Really, just as we're, we're kind of getting into this parable, this is something that we've heard in the last several months. Maybe this is something that you think about very often. But here, in this parable, Jesus wants us to understand how to watch. Okay? So as we study this parable, let's understand how, how is it that we're supposed to stay ready for the second coming? Jesus sets up this story. There's a man who goes where? Far country. Yeah? He goes to a far country with the expectation that he's going to Come back, okay? This is just setting up the second coming. Jesus has just been talking about it. Matthew chapter 24, hey, you want to know when I'm coming back? The thing is, you don't know. <laughs> and so there's going to be a sense of delay. So how do I respond to that delay? Well, this is how we respond. When Jesus goes, he entrusts to us his, quote-unquote, goods. His goods. And to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, Pray tell, what is a talent in this story? Literally speaking, as Jesus is telling this story, what is it that the master is actually giving to his, his workers? Money. money. Money, okay? A talent is actually not a form of currency. It's actually a weight, a measurement of weight. It's about 75 pounds of silver. 75 pounds of silver, which actually commentaries equate that to 6,000 denarius, and a denarius is a day's wage. Do, do you see where this is going? <laughs> this guy, he just loads, unloads $2 million of liquid assets on three servants and says, okay, see what you can do with this. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, I, I didn't realize that until I dug a little bit deeper and just, whoa, five talents. Well, that's nice. No, that's really nice. Okay, 6,000 days wage in one, one 75-pound bag of silver, that's like 16 years of work. Praise God. <laughs> and so, it's not like, yeah, it's not like this landowner is just kind of wanting to see what will happen. No, he's actually entrusting, handing over his livelihood. And this tells us something about this owner. And by the way, who is this owner supposed to represent? Jesus, right? The one who goes on a far journey. And then it's supposed to come back. This is a representation of Jesus, right? This tells us something about Jesus. It tells us something about both his character and his relationship to the workers. First of all, what is Jesus' character? I would suggest that Jesus in this story is extremely gracious. Wouldn't you say so? He's extremely gracious, almost prodigious and wasteful and, are you kidding me? Ridiculous in his generosity. Jesus is gracious beyond measure. Do you believe that this morning? That there's grace even enough for you? Even enough for me? 
See, this, the emphasis in this story, oftentimes we kind of get caught up in the five, two, one. Oh, poor guy. The guy got only one. No, no, no. Everybody got extreme amounts of grace here. Everybody got extreme amounts of good. So it tells us about Jesus' character, that he's extremely gracious with his possessions, that which he has earned the right, not just to keep, but that which he has earned the right to give. What else about his relationship? His relationship to the servants is that he actually trusts them. Praise the Lord. That Jesus, when he looks at you and I, he actually looks at us with, an, with a measure of faith and confidence and reliance in you and I. I don't know if that makes you feel good, but it sure does to know that the creator of the universe actually sees some value in me to do something with, he, with, with which he could easily do much better himself. <laughs> and so Jesus, he's gracious and he's trusting, but he's also understanding of our unique abilities, which is why he gives five, two, and one. He has an individual acquaintance with us. And as the story goes, how do these three servants, how do these three servants respond to this load of treasure? Let's take a look. Verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and did what? You see it? He made another five talents. Okay, basically, 200%, yeah? He, he goes for it. He does something with it. And likewise, verse 17, he who had received two gained two more also. And then in verse 18, here's the, the little bit of a contrast, but he who had received one went and dug in the ground and did what with his Lord's money? hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. Verse 21, his Lord said to him, Well done! What kind of servant? Good and faithful. Okay? Just hang that in a shelf in your mind. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the what? Joy of your Lord. Verse 22, He also who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, what? Good and Faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Do you notice a repetition? Yeah, verse 21 and verse 23, they're exactly the same thing said to two different servants who had different amounts, but you'll notice that the amount wasn't the major concern, right? The amount or the, the, the level of productivity wasn't the major concern, but the fact that they were productive. And so he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. Before we get to the third servant, I just kind of want to make sure that we understand what made these two servants good and faithful. Notice, again, the emphasis not on the different amounts, but on the different responses to what they received. And so when, when this master says that they're good and they're faithful, again, what he's identifying is character and relationship character and relationship. He's identifying something about their character. What is it? Good. Their character is good. They didn't just run with the money and squander it for themselves. I, I would have been, let's be honest, we would have been tempted, <laughs> right, to take, what, 30,000 days wages and do, you know, trip to here, you know, vacation to there, <laughs> 
this toy in my garage, that toy in your garage, you know, whatever, right? But no, what we see is that these servants are good. In other words, honest of heart, full of integrity. Their intentions are only the best and not for themselves, therefore the master, which goes to our next thing, their relationship. What was their relationship to the master? It was one of loyalty. And did you notice what, what the master said? They're good and faithful. That word faithful, I think it's actually describing their relationship to the master. First, full of faith that the master is going to come back. And because of that, they are faithful in return, that the master can have faith fully in them. Okay, so it's really quite a, uh, just, you know, when you break it down, they're not just faithful in the sense of being trustworthy, but also full of confidence in the master that, yeah, you know what, this master, he, he's gone on a far journey, and he expects something to be done with his goods. So it, it's about their relationship to the master. It's not all about themselves. It's not just obtaining oil for themselves. It's not just knowing God for themselves to the detriment of others, but it, it's a, it's a response to the, to the grace that they've received. And as a result of this, when the master comes and says, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a few, I'll make you ruler over many, he doesn't just say, okay, go take a vacation, stop working. He actually gives them more work to do. Did you notice that? And then he says that phrase, enter into the joy of your Lord. What is it that Jesus is referring to here? When the master returns, what event is it when the master returns? It's the second coming, right? So at the second coming, when, when Jesus is depicted as saying, enter into the joy of your Lord, what is he asking people to enter into? Heaven. Heaven. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Could it be that heaven's heartbeat, heaven's joy, isn't just about kicking up your feet, but it's about serving other people? Like he, he, he basically says, hey, look, you've done a lot with a little. I'll give you even more work to do. Now you can enter into heaven. Why? Because the heartbeat of heaven is all about service, and they've been demonstrating their readiness for that all along. Do you see that? Yes or no? Yeah? And so entering into the joy of the Lord, sometimes we think the joy of the Lord is just, you know, hanging out on puffy clouds, sipping some lemonade. But friends, the joy of the Lord, it makes me think of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, kicked up his feet and drank some lemonade. Is that what? The, no, 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 no. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. The joy of Jesus was to give himself for others. Entering into Jesus' joy is the result of already giving ourselves for the sake of others. Do you follow that today, yes or no? Yeah? These servants, the people that Jesus is, is approaching when he comes, they have been reflecting his character of service. They have taken the goods that Jesus entrusted to, him, to, to them when he first left, and they've been using it for the benefit of others. And then comes the third servant, right? Then comes the third servant, and you already understand the contrast here. It's in verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. We'll come to that verse in just a moment. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look there, you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you what kind of servant? Wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And this is a little bit of a sobering heart check, right? What is the difference between the first two servants and this third servant? It's how they responded, right? It's how they responded to the goods. What is, you know, we, we saw the first two servants, their character and their relationship to the master. Their character was good. Their relationship was full of faith. What about the character and relationship of the third servant? According to the assessment, where was it? In verse 26, character was wicked. Character was wicked. It's interesting, though, because sometimes you're like, well, what, he, he didn't do anything like, terribly wrong. He just hid the treasure in the ground. And in fact, when you look at the, the culture back then, it's not like they had, you know, Bank of America over here and Citibank over there and Chase over there. No, they actually, in order to secure their goods, they, the common practice was to dig holes in the ground and hide it, just as long as they were the only ones that knew where, where that treasure was. And so it's not like they did anything wrong or he did anything wrong, but he missed the priority. You see, hiding the treasure is only something you do when your priority is security, rather than productivity. Did you catch it? The third servant, his priority when he received the treasure, you know, however many, uh, what was it, 6,000 days wages, his priority was security rather than productivity. And because of that, his character, the master assesses it, it's wicked, which means evil, pain-ridden. The, the Greek word actually implies this sense of creating pain and agony for others causing hardship on others. And the relationship? Well, he uses that word lazy. Later on in verse 30, he uses the word unprofitable. And what we see there is that it's not just that this, this servant is slow to his feet. It's not just that he's hesitant or reluctant, but it's not, it's, it's not just talking about how or the manner in which the servant works, but the attitude with which the servant views the master. He's slow to stand in service before God. He's slow to actually jump to his feet and serve God. His relationship is lazy. His relationship is like, it's a, it's a minimalistic relationship. Do you understand what I mean by that? I, I had a classmate in, in college. We were kind of uh, rivals with one another, even though we were really good friends. In the classes that we had the same, you know, teacher and homework and assignments and all that stuff, we would always kind of compare grades and make sure that, you know, one was higher than the other or whatever. Uh, but then there, it would come to this time where I realized that, that my classmate, although he was a great buddy of mine, he still is, he, he kind of approached things from a minimalistic standpoint. It's like, okay, when it came down to the final, he assessed his grade and he said, okay, 
if I want to keep an A at the end of the term, what's the least amount that I can get on this test <laughs> in order to achieve an A? Do you, do you understand his mindset at that point? What's the, le the least I can do in order to keep the grade that I want? In other words, this servant was, was basically thinking to himself, what's the least I can do to make sure I can slide on in? He's wicked character, but he's lazy in relationship. When it comes to his relationship with his master, it's not like he's jumping at his feet to serve God. That's why he's slothful and slow. And so... The master basically tells him, hey, look, uh, this isn't what I expected. I wasn't prioritizing security. I was prioritizing productivity. And what's interesting to me is that in verse 24, it kind of gives us an inkling as to what that servant was thinking and feeling. In verse 24, let's read it again. It says, then he who had received the one talent came. And what were the first four words? That the servant says, Lord, I knew you. Does that sound strangely familiar? In the previous parable, the ten virgins, the five that were left outside the door, they're saying, Lord, Lord. And then there's someone at the door that says, I never knew you. In other words, there wasn't a relationship there. But here, this servant is saying, Hey, look, my relationship is real, but it's skewed. What did he know precisely in verse 24? Lord, I knew you to be a what kind of man? Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jesus, right? This servant has a perception of Jesus that, that he sees Jesus as hard and demanding as a taskmaster. Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. In other words, he has little appreciation of what the master has already given. And all he can think about is what the master wants to take. How much had that servant been given? 6,000 days wages, right? And all he can think about is what the master wants to take. He doesn't really know his master. Have you ever noticed that our thoughts, um, the train of our thoughts actually affects the train of our feelings? Like the more we think about something, uh, the more excited we get about it, it, it kind of impacts our feelings. Or maybe if we think more about something, the more depressed we begin to feel. It's interesting how thoughts affect feelings. And it's interesting even more that our feelings impact our, our actions. Notice how the thoughts, act, uh, thoughts, feelings, actions work out here. He has a thought about God, uh, about Jesus, that he is a hard man, that has a little appreciation for the Master's grace. But what is the feeling? What is, what is the, the emotional dynamic of this man's heart? Do you notice it in verse 25? He's afraid. It's fear. If we have a skewed picture of who Jesus is, it will have a skewed impact on our, on our hearts. What was the emotional dynamic of the other two servants? What would you say the emotional dynamic of the other two servants was? What did the master say to them? Enter into the, the joy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You see, they, they recognize, the first two servants recognize the master's grace. Whoa, this is a load of treasure. Let me do something great with this. And they were joyous about it. The third servant said, oh, the master only wants to take some more from me. And all he could think was fear. And that feeling, those thoughts led to feelings, those feelings led to actions, the actions of just hiding, of hiding the treasure. 
The point the third servant misses, but the other two servants got, was that being entrusted with the master's treasure is intended to inspire efforts of productivity and production, not just preservation and protection. The master's treasure being handed over to them was to inspire efforts of service, not just secrecy. Why do we bring this up? Why? Because this is all, I mean, this is how God wants us to watch. This is how God wants us to be ready for his second coming. In other words, this is how God wants us to be Adventist. Amen? If we're going to watch and be ready, it involves, yes, like the parable of the ten virgins, obtaining oil for yourself, a knowledge of God for yourself, doing God's will for yourself, but it also involves using God's grace for others. Do we follow that picture today, yes or no? That it's not just about me, myself, and I? Watching for the second coming is not just about your personal bubble. <laughs> it's about how you use God's grace to impact others' bubbles. The third servant missed it. The third servant missed it, and he was all about preserving his own experience. The third servant missed it, and he was all about securing and keeping his, his own experience alive so that there would at least be something when the master returned. But God is not just in interested in security of his treasure. He's interested in the productivity of his treasure. Which brings me to another question. What exactly was the treasure that Jesus entrusted to us when he went on his far journey? Have you ever thought about that? What was the treasure that Jesus gave to his disciples upon his ascension? The gospel message. Yeah, he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Right, he gave us this gospel commission. Do you want to see something even more specific? Go to Ephesians chapter 4. This is really quick, and then we'll, we'll, we'll break. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is in the New Testament. You're going from Matthew. Go to the right. You go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts. Then you got Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 7. We'll read verse 7. And eight. When you're there, say amen. Awesome. You guys are quick. All right. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Paul is writing. He's, talking, he's just so enamored by the grace of God. And he says, But to each one of us, what has been given? Grace. Awesome. This gift. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, where, when was it given? Verse 8. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave what? Gifts to men. Okay, talking about his ascension, right? Going on his far journey. When he did that, what did Jesus give? Gifts. What gifts? 6,000 days. I never found that in my bank account. What gifts is he talking about? Go down to verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. According to this, when Jesus went on his far journey, he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit 
manifested in what we commonly call spiritual what? Spiritual gifts. Okay, let's put this together. The gifts that the master entrusted to his servants when he went on his far journey. These are gifts of the Spirit for the work of ministry. Agree, yes or no? Yeah? We see that very clearly. When Jesus left, he's like, hey, here are some gifts. (laughs) Gifts of the Spirit for ourselves to secure and hide in the ground or to produce to produce. Do you you follow this today, yes or no? Yeah? Okay. So Jesus gave gifts, and could it be that he could only give these gifts, he could only ascend to heaven by virtue of the cross? In other words, Jesus' ability to give you and I spiritual gifts was purchased on Calvary. Sometimes we think of spiritual gifts and sometimes we look at uh, these yellow surveys, ministry placement surveys, as optional luxuries. Oh, you know what? I might have a spiritual gift to use. Do you realize that that is 6,000 days wages of treasure loaded on you? Hold the phone. Oh, I, only, I only have one. I only have one spirit. 6,000. Do you, okay, are you kind of changing perspective on this a little bit? That you're what you consider a meager or measly spiritual gift, or maybe you've got a full range of them. Whatever it is, the fact is, it was purchased for you on Calvary. Your opportunity to serve is a response to grace. Your opportunity to serve in the body of Christ is something that Jesus died for. Who am I to hide it in the ground? This just gets me all passionate about preaching. Okay? <laughs> Let's get, uh, the, the point is this, that whatever your gift is, no matter how small, no matter what shape, no matter how many, that gift is a treasure that the master unloaded on you. And he unloaded it on you, not so you could bury it in the ground, but he unloaded it on you so that others could be blessed so that others could be prepared for his return. Are you getting out your yellow surveys yet? No, this isn't just like a manipulative way to get you. No, 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 no. Here's the thing. At Parkwood, our vision is that we would belong to Christ in a healthy church family where every member, did you hear what I said? Where every member is valued and loved, thoroughly equipped, and joyfully involved in linking others to Christ. It's not just the privilege of a, of a few elites. It's not just the privilege of a few popular. It's the privilege of anyone who has received grace to actually give grace to. Amen. How many of you today want to receive grace? With the other hand, how many of you want to receive, uh, receive that grace to give that grace? Amen. Amen. And that's the story of the cross. Today, when we're splitting for foot washing and communion, this is, this is the point. Communion is not just a day to reflect on the load of treasure that our master made available to me, myself, and I. It's not just about enjoying this load of grace for myself. Foot washing and communion is a call to receive grace so that we can give grace. I'll say amen to that.
<laughs> in just a few moments, we're going to split. I want to pray together, and what we'll do is, men, if you want to partner up with other men, go on to this room. Ladies, if you want to partner up with other ladies, go on to that, uh, Bellamin Hall. If you're a family, if you're a married couple that would like to celebrate this, and maybe you're a, a father or a mother that wants to use this as a teaching moment for your children, go to the family's room. We're going to go all the way to the kindergarten classroom as families. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I, I didn't come with anybody. Who am I supposed to partner up with? It's okay, there are other people like that, and they'll be in that room. So you just find yourself in that room, and by God's grace, um, look for an opportunity to serve. Now, when you come back, when you wash up and come back, Come and sit every other row so that when the bread and juice is passed around, we can easily navigate through the rows, okay? Is that clear, everybody? Yeah? Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. And we realize today that this grace is a treasure that we have often underestimated. God, this treasure is something that we have often undervalued. Forgive us for our nonchalance with this load of treasure. And Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts today to commune with you for the sake of saving others. Lord, we want to be ready when you come. So as individuals, as families, as a church family, make us good and faithful. We pray this in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, amen. All right. So go ahead and make your way to your rooms. Find a partner in your rooms. And then we'll come back and sit every other row. God bless you.